Okay, here we have a legion of demons, a herd of pigs plummeting off of a cliff, and a man living in a graveyard on the outskirts of town. These are shocking images that we find in this particular episode. It's like as you read it, word after word and sentence after sentence and paragraph after paragraph, at least to me, it just spills out for us as the reader. It's almost like you have to pinch yourself and remind yourself this event actually occurred. Okay, in the story, Jesus arrived uh, on the other side of the lake, uh, fresh after the episode we saw last week where he calmed the perilous storm. And immediately upon landing on the shore, a demonically oppressed and influenced man threw himself at Jesus' feet. Uh, it says there in verse 3 that this man lived among the tombs. Uh, the community, apparently, over there on that side of the lake had tried to quell this disaster of a human life with prison and with chains, but he could not be bound. And he broke their chains and their shackles. There was a superhuman strength about him, in other words. And he would break their chains or bonds. He could not be subdued. And because of that, he was forced to live among the tombs, in the hills, or near the cliffs, near the water's edge on the east side of the lake. Night and day, this man howled in misery, harmed himself by cutting himself, perhaps in an attempt to speed death, or maybe even believing that somehow that would release the demons that were within him. It is difficult to imagine a sadder depiction of someone made in God's image, but so obviously tarnished and seemingly beyond repair. You know, as we read the story, it seems natural that we would say something like this. I don't know anyone who is, is as broken as this particular man. But as you read the story, as it unfolds, we have great delight when we discover that this man and his accompanying demons are no match for Jesus. It seems like Jesus easily confronts the unclean spirit. It, it, the spirit was called legion, he says, for he is many. Uh, he, he deals with this spirit from this man. And Jesus hurled the demons from the man and gave them permission then to go into a herd of swine about 2,000 in number. Okay, the demons wasted no time in destroying the life of these pigs, uh, driving them headlong down a steep bank, drowning them in the Sea of Galilee. Okay, the herdsmen, of course, were freaked out by all of this, and they began spreading the word of what Jesus had done. And when they did, people came out to see what had occurred. What they found was this infamous tomb dweller sitting there dressed and in his right mind with Jesus. And just like the disciples who were filled with fear in the episode on the Sea of Galilee after Jesus calmed the wind and the wave, the crowds were also afraid and they begged Jesus to depart from their region. 
He had disrupted their way of life. And so they wanted nothing to do with him. Now, before Jesus left, he commissioned the man who had been under a demonic spell to go home and tell his friends how much the Lord had done for him. And though the man had wanted to go with Jesus, uh, he obeyed Jesus's wishes, proclaiming everywhere in that region how much Jesus had done for him. And Mark's conclusion to this whole episode is very straightforward. It's found there at the end of verse 20. He said, everyone marveled. Okay, what are we, though, meant to see in this episode? I mean, the narrative brings up a lot of interesting little questions, don't you think? I'm sure you've thought of many of them as we read through the passage. You know, is this how demons work? How did this man become so demonically influenced? How many of them tortured this man? And what's up with Jesus allowing these demons to go into a herd of pigs? It just seems so odd. But these aren't the reasons that Mark recorded the story in so much detail. What are the reasons that Mark recorded this story? What are we meant to see in this episode? What is the focus? What did Mark and the Holy Spirit want us to glean from this passage? Okay, these are the questions that we're going to use to guide us in our study today of this particular episode. And I'm going to point out three emphases today in this passage, starting with the most important. Number one, it's this. There's the Christological emphasis. The Christological emphasis. What do we learn here in this passage about Jesus's identity? What do we learn about Jesus's identity? You see, the episode is actually meant to be a sequel of last week's story. Remember that massive storm out there on the Sea of Galilee and how the disciples were fearing for their lives. When Jesus calmed the wind and stilled the waters, the disciples said to one another in Mark 4, verse 41, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's their question. And it just hangs there at the end of that episode. And it looms over our text today. Who then is this? There was no real answer in the previous episode. So it follows into this story. Who is Jesus? This is the question, by the way, of all of Mark's gospel. Remember, he launched into this book with a statement about Jesus's identity. Mark chapter one, verse one says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. That's the first verse of the book of Mark. Jesus is the son of God. And as the readers of the book of Mark, we know this truth. We know that he's the son of God. But the characters of the book who are living these scenes and episodes, they are learning that Jesus is the Son of God. They are coming to discover Jesus's identity as these stories unfold. The disciples in the boat, the man on the seashore, and the villagers from the town were all learning about Jesus. He's the Son of God, God the Son, the Lord of creation, 
with power over all powers, even a legion of demons. And Mark shows this truth in some really clever ways if you look at the passage. First, notice what the demons said to Jesus. You know, while Jesus commanded the unclean spirit to leave the man, uh, the demon cried out with a loud voice, saying in Mark 5, verse 7 in the New Living Translation, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. So what do we see here? We see that the demons, they knew about Jesus. Now, we've already seen this way back in Mark chapter 1. Uh, you might remember the story in the synagogue in Capernaum where a man with a demon came in and the demon called Jesus in Mark 1 verse 24, the Holy One of God. And in Mark 1 verse 34, Mark tells us that the demons knew him, knew Jesus. Okay, but this encounter takes things a step further because not only do they know that Jesus is the son of God, but they beg him not to torture them. Now, Matthew actually adds a clarifying remark about this when he tells us in his recounting of this episode that the demon said, have you come here to torment us before the time, before the time. So here Jesus is presented as the one who is more powerful than the most powerful of demons and who has an appointed time that he will bring them into everlasting punishment. They even had to ask him for permission to enter into the swine. He's depicted in this episode as supreme, the singular authority on that whole coastline. The power of God had been displayed through him on the water of Galilee, and now God's authority is in Jesus on the land on the other side of Galilee. And the story concludes with a similar testimony about Jesus's identity. Remember, after the villagers ask Jesus to depart from them, the man then begs Jesus to go with him, and Jesus denies the man his request. Instead, telling the man in verse 19 to go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Okay, Jesus wanted the man to praise God for his newfound right-mindedness. That's why Jesus told the man to go around to all of his friends and tell them the great things the Lord had done for him. How the Lord had had mercy on him. You see, it was the Lord, the Lord God, who was to get the credit for what Jesus had done. What did the man do, though? Well, it says in chapter 5, verse 20, that he went throughout the region proclaiming how Jesus had done much for him. How much Jesus had done for him. So Jesus tells him to Tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. And he goes around telling them what Jesus has done for him. You see, Mark wants us to see through the calm storm and the delivered man who we are dealing with in Jesus. He is God who became one of us. He is the Lord who gets the credit. 
Creation's chaos on the lake in last week's episode and humanity's brokenness on the shore in this week's episode both find their healing in the God-man. The disciples thought that they would die a meaningless death at the hands of nature that night on the ocean or on the sea of Galilee. But Jesus is not just another in a long line of people who will go nature's way and die a meaningless death. No, the man was an extraordinary man, God man among them. And this man broken on the shore of Galilee was an extremely broken human. But Jesus is not just another in a long line of broken people who are without hope. No, instead, Jesus came to renew creation and to renew humanity. Jesus is God who entered into our broken world. We start with this point from this passage because I think it's where the Spirit would drive the reader of Mark's gospel. And because without understanding who Jesus is, you don't stand a chance with the rest of the points that you can glean from this passage. If you don't know who you're dealing with in Jesus, if you get his identity wrong, you'll never tap into the next two emphases that Mark has for us. So let's move on, though, to the second major emphasis of this passage. It's a missiological emphasis, a missiological emphasis. In other words, what do we learn from this passage about Jesus's mission? What do we learn from this passage about Jesus's mission? Okay, first of all, it really shouldn't be lost on us that Jesus crossed a raging lake and went through a terrible storm to reach one person. It's like a, a picture of the good shepherd with one lost sheep doing whatever he has to, to go find that one lost soul. And so Jesus, he crossed the Sea of Galilee. He went through a terrible storm in order to rescue that one man. You know, he would invited his disciples to go to the other side of the lake. As we saw last week, they went, they arrived. He delivered the man from his demonic oppression, and then Jesus departed. That was the only thing he did there on that coastline. Okay, now Jesus' whole existence, the fact that he exists, the fact that he took on flesh, is indicative of his mission. You know, that God became flesh, that the Son of God, uh, Most High, came and dwelt amongst humanity speaks of this mission. You know, he came to save us. He incarnated to die for us. You know, obviously we all know as we read of the storm Jesus went through last week that a greater storm is awaiting Jesus in the gospel of Mark. But also there is a greater harvest awaiting Jesus as well. He'd go through a more difficult storm in the cross of Calvary but he'd reap more than the harvest of one man like he did on this day because he would birth the church through his work on the cross and his great resurrection. And Jesus made it abundantly clear how valuable this one man was to him. You know, a lot of people have problems when they read this story uh, because they argue with the sovereign Lord and his decision uh, to allow demons to go into a herd of pigs. A lot of people are 
really flustered by this, really bothered by this. And some explain it away by saying that these were Jewish herdsmen who were raising pigs to be eaten by Jewish people, which was against the Old Testament law of God for the people of Israel. And so this was perfectly in line with God's word for Jesus to allow these demons to destroy these swine. Others say that Jesus was actually judging the Roman occupation. You see, Roman uh, soldiers were living in that entire region, occupying Israel at the time. And some people think that these swine were a protein source for the Roman uh, military machine and that Jesus, by allowing it them to die, was actually condemning that Roman occupation. And still, others say that Jesus needed to give the man visible evidence that he was free from his demonic torturers. Uh, proof, in other words, that the demons had left him completely and had gone into the swine or into the pigs. The truth of the matter is I don't think anybody really knows Jesus's exact reasons for allowing this to occur. But whatever Jesus's reasons for allowing something that in our little puny human microscopic view of things is horrific, one thing is clear. Jesus valued the life of one human soul more than 2,000 pigs. The destruction of, of this livestock was an economic catastrophe for somebody, but Jesus felt the price was worth the gain of this one man's eternal soul. You know, as we think about that, perhaps Jesus's attitude will help some of us as we consider the economic pain that many people are being forced to endure right now. You know, some are going to argue and have argued that it is worth it for the saving of human life. Others argue that human life is much more than just physical health. And to them, the economic despair isn't worth the measures that have been taken. And look, the reality is, I don't think as your pastor, I'm going to be able to settle that debate or settle that argument for you. But listen to me now. What if all of this economic destruction led to the saving, not just of human lives or human bodies temporarily only to go and die again at the end of a natural life. But what if it led to the saving of human souls? You see, it seems evident that the great health and wealth that so many of us have experienced in life, they don't actually drive us to God. Times of peace and prosperity don't stoke the flames of desire for God. But often they actually do the opposite and lull us to sleep. What if all this disruption led to the saving of many souls? I'm not saying that it will. I don't know that it will. But what if it did? I think that believers would then have to say that that was worth it. Whatever it takes for human beings to come into the kingdom of God. 
Okay, but did Jesus really do all this? Did he really cross the storm, the, the storm, go through the storm, cross the lake, do all of this for one man? Hardly. Uh, that one man, backed by a tremendous story about pigs descending a cliff and killing themselves, uh, had a powerful testimony. You know, and as, as he traveled through that 10 city region that he lived in called the Decapolis, everybody marveled at the story of what Jesus had done in his life. He'd been known as the crazy guy that lived out in the graveyard near the water's edge. Everybody knew about this wild man living in a state worse than an animal. And everyone knew the story of the pigs tumbling into the water. So when this man rolled into town and talked about Jesus, people began to listen. Look, this wasn't a job that the man wanted, by the way. You know, like we saw, he asked Jesus if he could join his disciple team. Uh, he wanted to get in the boat with Jesus. He wanted to leave that region. But Jesus refused and instead sent him to testify of Christ to his friends. This is all the more impactful when you consider that Jesus listened to the other requests all through the passage. Remember, the demons went to Jesus and asked him, begged him to let them go into the swine. And Jesus said, yes, the townspeople came out to Jesus and begged him, asked him if they, if he could depart from their region. And he said, yes. Now this man comes with a good request. Can I join your team? And Jesus declines. Now, do you remember the parable from a couple of weeks ago? Uh, all the parables really of the kingdom spoke to the growth of the kingdom and how it worked. Jesus said the word of the kingdom was like a seed going into the ground. On the right soil, that seed could produce fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. It goes into the ground and almost imperceptibly, it produces a harvest. One seed, as we said back then, has generations of orchards within it. Well, this man, you know what he is to Jesus? He's a seed that Jesus is going to plant in the region of the Decapolis. Right there in that place, this man went and began declaring Jesus and his kingdom. And eventually, after Jesus died and then rose from the grave, the church would go everywhere preaching the gospel. And when they got to the Decapolis, this man's region, they would have found fertile soil because this man had done his job. You see, Jesus has gone to great lengths to reach you. And he hasn't reached you for you alone. There are many others that Jesus wants to impact through your life. You aren't meant to be a cul-de-sac of his grace. You aren't me meant to be a dead end for the cross of Christ. Instead, you're meant to bring Jesus to your friends and family, showing them what Jesus has done for you. And this story helps us see that the mission of Jesus is part of our mission as well. Okay, but lastly, and in closing, there's a third emphasis that Mark, I think, would have us focus in on, and it's this. It's a therapeutic emphasis, a therapeutic emphasis. You know, what do we learn from this passage about what Jesus uh, can do for us, about Jesus's help? for us. And what I mean by therapeutic emphasis here is that 
Jesus brought complete deliverance and healing to this man. It's not that Jesus acted as this man's therapist, but uh, provided a therapeutic deliverance of the whole man. Uh, he put this man in his right mind, is what the passage tells us. It's a great phrase. It suggests to us that there is such a thing as our wrong mind. There's right-mindedness and then wrong-mindedness that we sometimes slip into. And as many of you have experienced, Jesus works today to bring us into our right minds. He turns us into new creatures for his glory. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Okay, I want you to see from this story how Jesus is willing to go anywhere to help you, to help his people. This was not a place, this was not a mission that the Jews of Jesus's day would have wanted. I mean, the whole story has an overtone of uncleanness. Tombs to them were unclean. Dead bodies to them were unclean. Demons were unclean. Pigs were unclean. And the Gentiles who lived in that region were unclean. But Jesus didn't care about any of that. He didn't care about entering into unwanted places to reach unwanted people. The force of the storm could not stop him. The forces of hell in these demons could not stop him. Nothing would hold him back from reaching this man who was his target. You see, Jesus is not afraid of the darkest parts of humanity, including the darkest parts of you. He sees those areas that you don't want to talk about. He sees those thoughts and beliefs that are driving you a little bit mad. And he wants to exercise his power to deliver you. There is no case that is too hard for Jesus. This man was so far gone, but Jesus delivered him. And that means that he can help you as well. Now, I believe that during the time we're in, we're doing an unnatural thing. It is in a sense unnatural to, to be a, a church family in the way that we're being a church family right now. It is unnatural not to see your friends and your family members live and in the flesh. It is unnatural. And in a sense, because of that, I'm fairly certain that many of you are struggling in the realm of your mind. I know there have been moments for me where I have struggled to have lucidity and clarity and calmness and peace and focus determination and self-control during a time like this. And so I'm sure that it is happening to many of you as well. But if Jesus could help this man, then he can help all of us during a season like this. You see, no one else could calm this man. I'm sure he tried to deliver himself many times, but to no avail. And society had tried to deliver this man as well. They tried to help him or at least trying to bind him but nothing anyone did had any lasting impact. Like so many of the world's strategies and so many of the world's plans, the end result was lacking. They couldn't deliver their hope or, or their desires, their hoped for objectives. The man was still 
overwhelmed. And maybe you can relate to that picture. You know, I know I can. I've often looked at this man's story and felt a measure of relationship to what he endured. I know that I can't control myself. I know that it's only been by the aid of the Holy Spirit, his working in my life, that self-control has come. Paul said, I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Have you ever felt that way? Can you agree with that statement at times? You see, many of us would agree with Paul. Like this man, we've tried everything, but no chain, no shackle, no accountability system could completely deliver us. It's only through the power of Jesus changing us from the inside out that we find real deliverance. As Paul said in Romans 7, 24 and 25, he asked, who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, as we close, I want to look at a handful of things, five things that Jesus does to help us. How does Jesus deliver this therapeutic aid to us today? You see, he helps us today in many ways similar to the way that he helped this man. And as we wrap it up, uh, let's think of the ways that Jesus applied his wholesale therapeutic aid to this man in his mind. How did Jesus bring this man, in other words, into his right mind? And how might Jesus do the same for us today? Number one, Jesus intercedes for you. You see, first, when even when you weren't aware or are not aware, Jesus intercedes for you, the Bible teaches, just as he interceded for this man when he also was not aware. Jesus lives to make intercession for you, Hebrews 7, verse 25. And he does this for you even when you are unaware of his intercession. Number two, Jesus reminds you of who you are. You see, second, Jesus tries to remind you of your identity, just as he asked the man his identity or his name. What is your name? Jesus asked the man. And I think that Jesus was trying to break through to the man, grabbing a hold of the man's true identity. And often when we're in our wrong mind, when we're in the wrong place mentally, we're believing the wrong things about ourselves and who we are, things contrary to the gospel. But Jesus wills to get us to think biblically about who we are in him. Third, Jesus demonstrates his power for you in his death and resurrection, a far greater victory than was displayed when the pigs ran down the embankment into the water. Jesus's cross and empty grave are meant to remind you of the radical and powerful victory that he wrought in delivering you from brokenness and sin. And fourth, Jesus clothes you with righteousness, rightness and acceptance before God, just as he clothed this man. He cleans you and deposits his perfection into your mind and body. He makes you right with God. And finally, fifth, Jesus sends you out to testify to what he's done in your life, just as he did to this man. The man was far from perfect. 
He didn't know a lot of things, but he could declare what Jesus had done for him. And we can do the same. Church, I pray that in the same way that Jesus worked in this passage, he would also work in our lives today. God bless you, church. I miss you so much. Like John said to the churches that he wrote to, I look forward not to writing you with pen and ink or communicating to you with streaming audio and video, but meeting together once again, face to face. Have a wonderful rest of your Sunday, a wonderful rest of your week. God bless you, church.